0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking The Cure, Hogan Lovett's life sciences and healthcare podcast. A couple of weeks ago, before we were hit with the COVID-19 pandemic, I was able to talk to Phil Katz, a partner in the DC office and head of the Pharma Biotech Regulatory Practice. Phil is also a member of the leadership team of the Global Regulatory Practice Group with responsibility for the Americas and a member of the US National Diversity Committee. We'll be talking about what's happening in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry, the global practice of law in this space, and hopefully we'll learn a little bit about Phil too. As a side note, I decided to create two parts for this interview since we ended up talking over 45 minutes and I'm not letting any minute of this go to waste. So you get the second part of the interview in about two weeks. As always, I'm trying to keep the interest short as we are going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk The Cure. Hi, Phil. Thank you for joining me today. Tell us a
1: little bit about your practice in the pharma biotech regulatory practice. Sure. I spend a lot of my time as the head of the pharma biotech practice. And that group is uh, the largest in the country, quite frankly, in the world of lawyers and non-lawyer technical professionals who are dedicated to pharmaceutical and biotechnology regulatory issues. We cover the whole landscape of what folks do, from developing products to getting them approved, to bringing them onto the market, to tracking the safety issues, to innovating them, to manufacturing them in compliance and advertising them in compliance. So, so we cover everything and we do it on a global basis. Uh, the group is primarily, but not exclusively in the United States, Um, We have a global presence, um, and we work closely with folks outside our group in jurisdictions like Asia and uh, Europe who are not technically in our group but do the same work that we do. And so it really is a very broad approach to the pharma biotech industry where we bring technical expertise, uh, legal expertise, and a nuanced understanding not just of the law but how things get done in practice. And that's what allows us to give our clients the top drawer advice that is both legally compliant, but also business savvy, and it helps them accomplish the work that they're trying to get done. My my personal practice within that is primarily with regard to approvals of products and the regulatory exclusivities, like orphan drug exclusivity, or that for biologics, or for new chemical entities. It's those kinds of issues and the broader strategic interactions with the regulatory authorities in that context.
0: To give a little bit more background on this, why did you
1: turn to life sciences as an industry? To be honest, it was, it was happenstance. I wish I could tell you that I had a master plan that I'd been working since I was four years old to be a regulatory lawyer advising the pharma biotech sector, but that's not anywhere close to the truth. I didn't set out to practice law. Uh, in, in fact, I was I was 29 years old when I went back to law school at night after working in a number of different fields. Uh, and when I first practiced law, I was a litigator, not with a particular focus. I ended up here, quite frankly, because I had a good friend who was practicing law and had created a boutique firm, and she asked me to join them. Um, and it was that that's how I ended up doing this kind of law. Um, it wasn't my intention, but once I ended up there, once I fell into it, if you will, I embraced it and uh, and I've really enjoyed it. It is a broad field. It, it allows for the intersection of science and law and public policy and patent rights. It is always evolving and changing. Um, so it's it's been a challenge and, and an interesting way to spend my professional life for the past 25 years.
0: Obviously, since it's so heavily evolving and there's so much going on, You are in constant conversation with clients and learn about their business and what they're up to and what issue they're facing. But are there other platforms or other opportunities you take to get informed and stay ahead of the curve?
1: Well, a, a lot of it, you know, we all need to make efforts to stay informed of developments in our field. And, and that can be from speaking, from participating in events, from writing articles, but also obviously from reading what's happening in the trade press. There, there are things that we do to stay informed. But quite honestly, a lot of it comes when you have a practice as broad and as deep as we do, it comes from the interactions with clients and interactions with the regulatory agencies. But yeah, you need to you need to keep track of what's going on, particularly in this field, because what we're really seeing is an evolution of the science, and the law and the regulations need to evolve to reflect the new technologies. And there's always going to be a lag time, and that... Lag time is often where mischief is made or where innovation can be pursued in terms of how we get things done.
0: When I hop over to the philosophy behind your practice and your work and what your drivers are, I'm guessing these ideas and the things you just mentioned are an essential part, right?
1: Well, yeah. uh, Listen, my my philosophy, I, I think I'd say first and foremost, my philosophy and the group's philosophy is to bring innovative legal solutions to our clients' business problems. I mean, they come to us where where there's an issue of the law or the regulations that relates to something that they're trying to accomplish in business. And so it's really important that we start from the understanding that our job is to help our clients get get their job done well and in a way that is compliant and helps them meet their business goals. So so that's step number one. In in terms of how we accomplish that, however, it, it does involve knowing the law very well, knowing the precedence of how the law has been applied, and, and in this space it's not like um, court cases that are binding precedent, but knowing how the agency has approached this before, knowing how other companies have approached this, um, so you can think creatively about what to do. That That's a, a second big piece of it. I think a third piece of it, quite honestly, is to remember that you're dealing with this in a human context. It's it's sometimes easy to get wrapped up in the intellectual challenges of the issues, but you have to remember when you're doing this that you're working with other people, and that's both your colleagues and the client. And particularly with the client, it's important to remember Why is the client asking this question? What is it that she or he is trying to accomplish? Both the business goal, but also for them within their business organization. Um, And I think... That, and then lastly, being a human being in your interactions with everybody, including your colleagues, is a fourth part of the philosophy that I think is essential. We work really hard. um, We work really long hours sometimes, um, and we work under pressure a lot. And it's important that while we're doing that, we're doing it in a way that is collegial and collaborative and recognizes the humanity in each one of us, Um, because I think that sometimes gets lost in the hurly-burly, let's get it done really well.
0: So you see yourself as a legitimate business partner, since our advice is often so critical to our clients' business.
1: Sure. No, that, look, that's, that's really what it is. That's what I mean when I say we have to understand that our job is to help them accomplish their business goals. Um, you know, quite frankly, we're an expensive uh, law firm. Uh, I I quickly add, I, I think we're worth every penny, but we're an expensive law firm, and clients don't come to us with simple questions or unimportant questions, even if complex. They come to us with questions that are, A, complex most often, and B, usually very important to them. And so we need to bear that in mind when when they're bringing us some of their most important and pressing and concerning issues. We need to rise to that occasion, and and that's why it's important to understand the context and understand the business context, so you can you can devise helpful solutions to them. That's what we do. And I would say in that context, if you do that right, one of the things you're doing is you're knowing the client and the client's business very well. And that allows you not only to give them really good advice in the context of the immediate issue, but it allows you to develop a relationship with them that that we would call being the trusted business advisor, where yeah. they're going to come to you for a broader array of things. And also where you're hopefully going to be in a position to anticipate things for them, not just have them come to you and say, ooh, I have a problem, but to be able to say to them, I know that you're working in this space. I know you're considering this kind of a a clinical trial or this kind of an orphan drug application or this kind of a transaction. Let me talk to you a little bit about what's happening in the field there that you might want to take into account while you're planning what you're going to do or while you're implementing it. And, and that's something that comes from knowing the client really well.
0: And there we are turning back to like know the client and being ahead of the curve. So some from time to time warn the clients when you potentially see issues arising, what can influence their business or their project in the future.
1: Oh, um, oh, sure. Ab- absolutely. Listen, in, uh, t- to be honest, in the day-to-day press, it's often hard to think to do that. But if we get to know our clients really well... We can anticipate what some of their needs are. And, yeah, we provide an invaluable service, even if it doesn't, at that immediate moment, turn into a huge amount of work. Just the, the implications for the relationship that you have with the client, to be able to say to them, I was thinking of you because I know X about you, and I thought you would find this interesting or important or helpful. I mean, it's the same thing I would do for one of my partners, one of my colleagues um, here at the firm. If they were in a space and I knew something and I I would want to say, hey, saw this, thought maybe we should talk about it a little bit, maybe I can give you a heads up, didn't know if you're aware of it, you would do that for a colleague because we're all in this together. If you reach across to do that with clients, you're really building uh, very important relationships that quite frankly, um, I think... I find much more satisfying and interesting, but also not coincidentally more helpful from a business proposition.
0: I'm taking away from this that this is potentially the success overall in your mind, when it yes. comes down to yeah, assisting it, clients, helping out colleagues. Yes, um, yes.
1: Look, when, if you're saying overall, what would I call success? I, I, I think success has a has a number of components. Right. And and one of it is yeah. um, being very, very good substantively at what it is that you do. Right. And some of that means knowing the law really well, as I said. And some of it means knowing outside of the law itself, the context in which the law is developed and the context in which it's been applied, and and knowing the client very well. So when you bring all that together, you can come up with, as I as I've said, you can come up with creative, innovative. Business oriented solutions, because that's what we're doing. We're giving them solutions to otherwise difficult situations. So, that's yeah. one piece of, of being successful, is that you're helping the client achieve what they want to do by doing your job really well. Uh, another part of being successful, however, is doing it in a way that you find personally satisfying. And that involves, for me, my interactions with and relationships with my colleagues at the firm and my colleagues. At um, at clients, I mean, it's not um, it's not happenstance that sometimes when I'm emailing clients and there's more than one of them, I will I will email them by saying colleagues because that's how I like to think of them. Um, yeah. And, and so I think that's part of a success is having those relationships with the people with whom you work that you find satisfying and enjoyable. Um, I think another part of success is doing it in a way that is kind. I think another part of success is doing it in a way that allows you to pursue things outside of work, including but not limited to family. Uh, I think another part of success is doing it in a way that not, not merely recognizes or accepts, but celebrates and embraces diversity and inclusion. I mean, those are the things that off the top of my head, I think of as, as what signifies success and what it is that we're doing here.
0: That's interesting because it's so it's so broad and really diverse and quite a mountain to climb to to get everything <laughs> in line <laughs> in yes. that constitution. Yes.
1: And I wish I could tell you that I hit all of those targets every single day, but I don't. It's a work in process and some days you do better than others. But yeah, it's a lot to try to accomplish. I think it's it's a it's a very high goal, but I can also tell you that when you achieve it, if only momentarily it's quite satisfying
0: and it's a driving force to get better um, and to reach that goals so i fully understand where you're coming from in that matter to talk about success and i don't want to hear the answer sorry i'm not allowed to talk about it your biggest case you had so far with the firm can you tell me a bit about it to give an idea what you worked on and why it was
1: your biggest case and what made it special Sure. I think if we're talking about sort of specific matter, and, and you say case, not necessarily a lawsuit, but but in this in this instance, I would say a lawsuit, was a lawsuit that we brought on behalf of our client Depamed, now the company's called Asertio, uh, with regard to a, a product of theirs and whether it would get orphan exclusivity from FDA or not. The end story is we sued FDA, we beat FDA, FDA thought about it, but decided not to appeal. So our judgment stood. And it was of such significance that it led the agency to, number one, make a public declaration that it was not going to apply this rule to any other case because they hated the outcome. Number two, it led them to change the regulations. And number three, it led them to go to Congress and have Congress change the law, which I think reflected the fact that, our legal position in terms of what the regulations were and in terms of what the law was, um, was very strong, which is why we won. Um, but 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 that's the end. I, I think, so one reason it was a success was it was a very big deal in the field and it changed things. But the other reason it was a success is because of, of the road that we took to get there. We didn't start by suing FDA. We actually represented the client for probably two years, in terms of uh, negotiations and interactions with an advocacy before FDA, mm-hmm. trying to get the agency to do of its own accord what it was that we thought was the right answer, because we thought they were interpreting and implying the law wrong. And so yeah. we we tried in a variety of ways, um, and in a way in ways that were tough and purposeful, but not offensive. We, we were advocating in front of the agency and we maintained a good relationship with our adversary, the agency, both with regard to Hogan Lovells and with regard to the agency's view of the client. We sued only when it was really a last resort and we did so successfully. Another reason that it's, it's, it's a big deal, uh, or at least it's a good example of success, is because it involved working with my colleagues, the litigators. I, I began my legal career, whatever, almost 30 as a years litigator. ago as a litigator, and, but yeah. I haven't been for a long time. And when this case arose, I was chomping at the bit to be able to litigate this case. I really wanted to be back in court standing up in front of the judge, but <laughs> that would have made no sense because we had much more skilled litigators than I uh, probably than I ever was, but certainly with my rusty skills. And so another reason it was a success was we collaborated very closely with Jess Ellsworth and and put together briefs and oral arguments that were quite persuasive using the best of the skills that those of us with the regulatory expertise had and that those of us with the litigation expertise had. Um, so for those reasons, I would think the, the DepoMed case was um, – was a big success. It also, by the way, was a success in that, as you talk to other companies who are potential clients, um, and you can say they can say something like, "Well, you know, I recognize the Depomed case, and what are your thoughts about that?" I can say, um, "Actually, I have a lot of detailed thoughts about the Depomed case because I'm the it guy." Was who it was me, right? Yeah. And so, and so, <laughs> it was also a success in that regard, in that it helped us get other work. I
0: find it quite interesting because now with this case and the change of the law afterwards, you're actually a part of the legal history of the United
1: States, right? I don't quite think of it in, quite in those august terms, but it's kind of you to say so.
0: Yeah, okay. I did it. I said it, yeah. so yes. if you go <laughs> look up the
1: case, Yes, if you go look up the case where it's reported, you will see my name. I'm not sure that anybody does that, probably not even my mother.
0: <laughs> and you talked about your history and that you work in this field for a long time. So, what do you wish you had known when you started
1: out? Would you do anything else, any different? Or you know, look, I, I'm the I'm the father of three daughters who are 22, 25, and 27 years old, and so I'm forever giving them advice. Um, and more often than not, unsolicited, but I'm forever giving them advice. Um, and and I have to uh, remind myself here as a, as a partner in the head of the firm, I'm, I'm working, particularly with our more junior associates, I'm working with folks who are the same age as my kids, and I have to resist the temptation to talk to them like they're my kids. Um, but uh, there are pieces of advice that I have learned over time that I try to impart to them, and and th- they include, and this is not something I was good at, um, still not particularly good at. They include having a sense of perspective about balancing um, how hard you work and um, and when you you carve out time not to work. I, I wasn't very good with that. I was a very involved father, and I'm proud of that but it came at the expense of sleep and it came at the expense of time for myself i don't think i handled that balance very well and so i think it's important to be very purposeful about that balance Uh, And I say that knowing that I get frustrated when folks are being purposeful about not being available because they've carved out some time for themselves and I've got a memo that needs to get out the door. So (laughs) I I recognize the hypocrisy of that, or at least the, the tension, let's call it that instead of hypocrisy. But I think it's really important to do that and to be purposeful about it. And in that regard, I think it's important to sort of draw lines so that to the extent possible, when you're doing the work, be all in the work. And when you're not doing the work and you're doing family or rock climbing or reading or whatever, be all in that. And that's another lesson I learned the hard way in terms of like, I don't know, I, I'm, I don't think I'm quite particularly bad at like being out to dinner and constantly checking my BlackBerry. But I know that I am particularly bad at going on vacation and checking my BlackBerry or opening up my laptop. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes unavoidable. But so a big piece of advice I would give folks is to purposefully choose when you're working, when you're not. And and you have to do that in a way that is, look, I, I wish I could say we all know that family is more important than work. And so you should always choose your family over your job. Well, you, you can't do that. I, I wish that it that it were that way, but it's not. And so recognize the second piece I would say is recognize that when you're making these choices, you're going to make um, unsatisfying choices sometimes, and you're probably even going to make wrong choices sometimes. So I, I wish I, I, I had that advice. I also tell folks about the importance of thinking very precisely about the issues in front of us, whether you're communicating orally but per, or in writing, but particularly if you're doing written communication, the precision of that communication is essential to its ability to accomplish its goal. Um, whether it's conveying information or whether it's advocating, the precision of that communication is essential. And that kind of precision has to flow from precise thought. So when I see writing that's not particularly up to snuff from my perspective, and I have very high standards as as the associates will tell you, when I see stuff that's not up to snuff, it's rarely that somebody doesn't know how to string sentences together and doesn't know how to, to vary sentence structure to make it interesting or is putting in way too many words or writing in legalese. It's often that the thoughts behind it have not yet been honed to where they need to be now that's something that we work through by doing different iterations of a, of a document different draft but that's another key I think to this and then the last piece I, I would say is to keep remembering why it is you're doing this and I don't mean in the cosmic sense of, of why are we here and why am I practicing law but I mean in the in the more day-to-day sense we're here to help the client achieve their business goal. And so bear that in mind as you're going about the work that you're doing. That's it for
0: today. As I noted on the beginning, the second part of this interview will be on all known platforms in about two weeks. If you already have questions for Phil, reach out via homelevels.com. In addition, so I'm not missing out on any information regarding industry developments as well as our activities in this sector Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Leave a like, leave a comment. If you are interested to join us in one of our conversations, please reach out to me via email or LinkedIn. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to return in about two weeks, so please join us again when we're talking The Cure.